Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax proposals to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's Global International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Washington, D.C. Policy on Demand studio, where I'm excited to have Callum Dewar back on the podcast. Callum is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office. Before joining the U.S. firm over 10 years ago, Callum spent the first 20-plus years of his career working in the U.K. Callum, welcome back to the podcast. Hello there. So before we dive into the pillar two issues that taxpayers need to think about in the context of deals, it's already early August 2022, and both the UK and South Korea have released proposed legislation for pillar two. I'll note before you comment that the UK draft rules are 116 pages and the Korean rules, which admittedly are just a summary, are 11 pages. Any key takeaways from these draft proposals? Well, I I think it's important to get the UK rules in context. They are a consultation document, and so they they were always going to be the first draft uh, for people to comment on. Um, and largely, those UK rules have pretty slavishly followed the model rules, albeit HM Treasury and HMRC have noted that there are a number of areas they think should be addressed by the OECD implementation framework with potential changes to the rules arising out of that. And what will be interesting to see is when, when the UK revises this draft legislation and moves it towards finalisation, if the OECD implementation framework has not got on board then, will the UK unilaterally make some changes to those model rules? Which would then leave us a position where at least one jurisdiction has slightly different rules than the model rules, and what will what that mean for the operation of the rules? South Korea, I mean, it's pretty hard to comment on 11 pages of summary. Um, it, it, either the South Korean language is significantly more efficient than English, or they've got a lot of work to get their other rules out. I think the, the one point to note, in, at least from what we could glean from that release, was it seemed like the intention from the South Korea perspective was to um, execute uh, effective dates on the IIR and the UTPR at the same time, being 1st of January 24. So no 12-month delay on the UTPR as compared to the IIR. So we'll see if that sticks. The UK release was silent on that point completely. They, they said that they'll release stuff on UTPR separately, but didn't comment on the effective date. Yeah, what was the timing, though, for the UK with one, one, respect to the one, IR? 1-1 one, one January 24. And so. that was just the income inclusion rule, and to yeah. your point, they were si- silent on the UTPR. And, and indeed on the QDMTT, for that matter, other than they, they were suggesting they would go that route, but effective date unclear. Okay. Um, so w- I wanted to spend the, the balance of today's discussion really focused on deals because, mm-hmm. you know, as these rules have, have been around, the model rules and the commentary since December of 2021, uh, a lot of, of interesting issues um, that mm-hmm. we've, been, we've been thinking about. So maybe before we dive into um, some of the specific deal fact patterns where you can share what we've learned, why is Pillar 2 important to consider today in a deals environment? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, let's base level, um, generally when people do deals, they do a tax-based model to work out what the tax rate would be on the deal they're doing to work out their return of investment on investment. And, you know, in, in if, if you're doing it now, you can project out when these rules might have effect. But the reality is where we sit today is these rules are highly likely to be effective at some point before the end of your deal model. Right. So if you were modeling out with a 5% or 10% effective tax rate on a certain jurisdiction, but you know that in a year and a half's time that may go to economically 15%, that should adjust your deal model. I appreciate it's hard because of the timing, mm-hmm. but the reality is that that's out there. The other side to it is knowing as part of your diligence what you're buying into from a Pillar 2 perspective. You know, what the structure is, how the structure was created, and whether it has 
issues with from a Pillar 2 perspective that would fundamentally change the Pillar 2 liability. So I think there's both a deal model issue and also a, um, a, a diligence point. Plus, generally, when people buy things, they want to do things with the things they buy. You know, whether that's integration or potentially carving out some businesses or whatever it is. And again, I re-emphasized this on previous podcasts, we are in the rules already right. in some regard. The transition rule applies to transactions that take place on or after 30 November 2021. And so we're in those transition rules. And so what you do with the assets that you buy, and indeed how you buy those assets, can be very important to the the overall application of the Pillar 2 rules. Good, and we're, we're gonna flush out some of those based on the various deal scenarios. But can you give any examples you had mentioned of just some diligence items that people should be mindful of? Well, I, I think, you know, you're gonna want at some point in time, I mean, it depends on what you're buying into. I mean, if you're buying, you know, a, a corporation in totality, then you're gonna have access to all the financial data once you've made the acquisition. So you'll be able to go back and look at transactions, balance sheets, etc., going into pillar two. But if you're doing a, you know, buying a carve out, they may, that may not come with the information you're gonna need at some point in time to work out your pillar two exposure on the things you've bought. So just that sort of thing, identifying where we're gonna need data. Yeah, your point on that is that if you're buying a carve out, you may not have separately stated financial statements right. Um, GAP, for example, or if I, IFRS or whatever, to be able to actually make the determination of what the history is for that kind of opening balance sheet for Pillar 2 purposes. Well, especially in the context of carve-out, because generally people will move those assets around Great to get point. them into the sales structure that they want to sell. And those transactions that moved it around, you're going to need to know what the basis was before those transactions, effectively for Pillar 2, at least the way we are, we are understanding how they will interpret that. So a lot of data there. And then obviously, you know, do, how are you getting a low tax rate? You know, not knowing whether it's a, a preference that is going to be caught under pillar two or not. Is it is it a refundable tax credit that's giving you a low tax rate or a non-refundable tax credit? Or, or what losses do you have? Are those losses good losses for the purposes of pillar two? What deferred tax assets mm. are you are you get buying into, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to think about in the, in the diligence space. Yeah, I mean, it's really a whole separate diligence that yeah. needs to be done now to really understand what those go forward implications are, particularly as it impacts the deal model and yeah. after tax returns that investors are looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I um, wanted to spend some time really going through just a number of different deal scenarios to understand you know, what taxpayers should be thinking about with respect to Pillar 2 in the context of, of a number of different deals. So I wanted to start with kind of the base case of a, a U.S. corporation buying another U.S. corporate target. And one of the questions is you know, 338H10, if the seller has you know, historic losses, that may be, you know, I think the H-10s are probably a little less common than the 338Gs, which we'll get mm. to. But what are some of the things that taxpayers should be thinking about when a U.S. corp is buying another U.S. corporate target? Well, I mean, let's roll back a little bit because I think it's important to remember that Pillar 2 operates in a world of financial statement characterization and seeks to apply the rules to the financial statement transactions and US tax disturbingly departs from that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Now whether that's because of check the box entities or whether it's because of things like 338 H10 where US tax says look if you make this election for US tax purposes we're going to characterize the transaction differently than from a financial statement or legal perspective. So if you think of something like a, a 338 H10, from a pillar two perspective, if a US company buys another US company, then there would be no basis in the underlying assets step up in from, target, for, right. from a financial statement perspective. There may be a well beyond consolidation because you may well do purchase price allocation and step up the assets on consolidation, but pillar two is very clear that any purchase price allocation basis step up as a result of consolidation is reversed out mm -hmm. in the calculations going forward. So assume you buy a company that has self-created IP, 
then for US tax purposes, if you did a 338 H10, you would be getting asset basis for US tax purposes, presumably amortizable under 197 over 15 years. Mm -hmm. But for pillar two purposes, that amortization would not exist, which means that the existence of the US tax amortization would be dilutive on the US effective tax rate. Now, whether that's a problem or not depends on how big it is and where your US effective tax rate is before that adjustment. Because if you've got enough headroom, because your US tax rate is 25%, you could take an amortization deduction and not go below 15. On the other hand, you could go below 15, and you need to be aware there would be a top-up tax. Yeah, if you're taking the R&D credit, FDII, uh, any yeah, all those preference, of other all preference those, items that we've talked about. Yeah, so we've talked about those before. They're, they're still there. There's nothing changed so far on that, as far as we know. Now, it is quite interesting that um, the p Pillar 2 does have a deferred tax asset mm -hmm. context. And what I've just said to you is, that, well, if you buy a U.S. company and you do a 338 H10, then for Pillar 2 per basis purposes, I've got no basis. Well, if I had no basis before, I have no right. basis. But for U.S. tax purposes, I definitely do get basis. Sure. And so the question then becomes... Well, okay, I don't get a basis for Pillar 2 purposes, but do I create a deferred tax asset? And then when I release that amortization, do I release the deferred tax asset as a charge to the P&L each period and get a covered tax that way? Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting because there's a transition period, there's the pre-transition period, and there's the post-rules mm -hmm. having effect. And that that analysis would be different in each of those periods and is not entirely clear what the intention of the rules would be. But I think there is a reasonable position to say that if you're doing a transaction now and you do a 338H10, that you should get a deferred tax asset on the basis step up in the first instance. Now, whether that will be sustained when we see final rules being enacted by jurisdictions, we're just going to have to wait and see. Okay, so that's a U.S. corporation buying another U.S. corporation. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to uh, what about a U.S. Purchase, purchasing a U.S. LLC as a disregarded entity? Because I think the, the, the same principles would apply if we're acquiring a U.S. LLC that's treated as a corporation. But what happens when we have a, a transparent entity for U.S. purposes? Right. The point I'm about to make on this is actually relevant for the 338 H10 situation as well. So, again, you're dealing with legal analysis, financial statement analysis. <clears throat> and, um, you know, even though for U.S. purposes, if you're buying an LLC, U.S. tax purposes, if you're buying an LLC, you're deemed to be buying the assets. For financial statement and legal purposes, you're buying shares in mm -hmm. an entity. So the base case is, again, no step up for Pillar 2 purposes and an interesting discussion around whether you get a deferred tax benefit or not. There is provision in the model rules to allow a situation where if a transaction is treated for financial statement purposes as a sale of shares but both the seller and the buyer under their tax rules treated as a disposal of assets and you can show that the seller has paid tax on that income or has been within the charge tax on income at least at the minimum tax rate of 15% then pillar 2 has an override rule that will say you can treat that as an asset purchase and get the pillar 2 basis and, and that is for after the rule is enacted. Well, right? it's a little unclear. Uh, uh, as with much of Chapter 6, which is sits in, mm -hmm. there is not much clarity on whether these rules that determine basis in assets are rules that have effect only when the rules are in place or are meant to apply those rules in the periods either before transition or during transition. I, I think the expectation is those rules only apply on a go-forward basis. After the law is enacted. Which could mean that, for example, if you're buying a, an LLC in the transition period, you could get a worse answer than if you're buying an LLC after the rules are in effect, from a Pillar 2 perspective. So uh, explain that. Well, because from a, if, you, if the rule is in effect, then you get effectively P 
pillar two basis in the assets. Assuming it's been charged to tax. Assuming it's been charged to tax, but and that basis will be amortizable, and that's amortizable at the full rate, at whatever the US rate is, 21% plus state, maybe 25%. If on the other hand, I don't get the pillar two basis because I'm in the pre-effective date of the rules, and I just bought shares in a company, then the best I can do is get a deferred tax asset on that basis, on the tax basis, but I'm capped at that at 15%, so I'm already 6% or 10% worse off than if I'd had the actual rule applying, and there is an interpretation of those rules that say I don't even get that deferred tax asset, so I'm wholly worse off mm -hmm. in the pre-effective date rules than I am in the transition rules. Which seems a bit harsh. Yeah, well, the, that is true of the transition rule as a general matter. Mm -hmm. um, Fair enough. There are, there are multiple situations where transactions that take place in the transitional period are giving a less advantaged result than, than if you waited until the rules are in effect, which isn't the normal case for a transitional rule. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about, and I, I know your answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, how do we know if a seller has been charged to tax? Because yeah. this is interesting, right? Because a buyer is now going to have to ask the seller, like, hey, what are the, the tax consequences? And then you think about, well, if that seller has a cap, let's say it's a U.S. seller, and they've got a capital loss carry forward or have another capital loss transaction. Mm -hmm. Well, the income was shown on a return, <clears throat> but then it could be offset by NOLs or capital loss. What are your thoughts on Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the wording necessarily lends itself to saying, you've got to write a check for that tax. I think it lends itself to saying, has it been brought within the charge to tax? But because of pillar two rules, certain attributes of sellers that are attributes from a US tax perspective are not good attributes from a pillar two perspective. So if you make a capital loss on the disposal of shares in a, on a go forward basis, it's clear that that loss is carved out of pillar two rules, but it's still a loss for US tax purposes. And so if a seller happens to have one of those losses from a US tax perspective, and therefore reduces its US tax burden on the disposal of the assets to you um, by that loss, is that really brought within the charge to tax? It's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, there's other areas as well. I mean, if you're, if you're selling, you know, for example, a US company could sell a foreign disregarded entity owned directly by the US, that would generally be seen as a disposal of the assets of a branch. You may have foreign tax credits you can use to uh, mm -hmm. shelter some of that. Are they good um, attributes to use with this? So the, uh, a disturbing lack of clarity in the model rules as to how you ascertain. But either way, what you do need to do in the M&A deal context is you may need to build into um, the deal transaction documents some covenants or otherwise for the uh, the seller to have to disclose how they've treated things when they file tax returns later um, and maybe amend tax returns later so that you can determine your treatment. That seems to be like something that could be a challenging negotiation as a part, yeah. as a part of deals. Yeah. So, so just to put into context, how does that the purchase of an LLC compare? Or what should people be aware of an LLC versus just a straight asset deal? Well, a straight asset deal, you're just getting the basis in the assets. I mean, it, you know, it, it may be a bad answer in certain cases. So, again, let's break that down a little bit. Yeah. But um, you know, basically, starting point is if I buy assets from a if I'm a U.S. company buying assets from another U.S. company, and they're U.S. assets. I'm getting tax basis in those assets. I'm also getting pillar two basis in those assets. So, so book basis. Book, book basis. Yeah. So at the starting point, my tax analysis and my book analysis holds true. So you don't have that discrepancy. So like I don't have any discrepancy. So no deferred tax on setup at all because I've got the same basis for book and tax. Right. However, <laughs> the a lot of the cases where a US company is buying assets, one of the assets they may be buying could be goodwill or other indefinite life assets. Mm -hmm. And for tax purposes in the US, the US is unusual, relatively speaking, 
is that they, when they change the code to allow 197 to apply to all assets, it applies to all assets. So goodwill is an amortizable asset for US tax purposes. So if you can imagine if I started off with a thousand of goodwill for both book and US tax purposes, and it's amortizable over, I should have started with 1,500 of goodwill, it's amortizable over 15 <laughs> years. The math is easier. So I've got 100 of amortization for tax purposes. What happens for pillar two purposes is I have a tax amortization of 100, I have zero book amortization, that tax amortization would give rise to a deferred tax liability. It's a timing difference mm -hmm. where the tax has been accelerated over the book. So you would get a deferred tax liability for, for gap purposes in that circumstance. However, for pillar two purposes, and that would count as a good covered tax in normal course of events. Yeah. So you wouldn't have a discrepancy either for, for pillar two purposes. However, Pillar 2 has a specific rule that says, I only get to count deferred tax liabilities if they will reverse within a five-year period. And given, I've just told you, it's an indefinite life asset for uh, book purposes, indefinite is more than five years, and therefore it will not reverse in five years, and you don't get the benefit. So even on asset deals... And when you say you don't get the benefit, effectively it causes it to be diluted for diluted purposes the, uh, of, of the, your calculation. Yes. Uh, and so, and that's true, actually, you know, in any situation where you're getting amortization for tax purposes, but not reflected in the book, unless it's fixed assets, which that rule is turned off for tangible fixed assets, but not intangible. So it, it, it's, you know, there are, there are areas you have to watch in the deal context, however you're doing the deal, assets are a little simpler than LLCs and 338H10s, at least in concept, but there's still footfalls available for everyone in, in that context. I mean, it's a whole separate model that needs to yeah. really be created using this Pillar 2 architecture to yeah. really roll through the calcs. And then you got to, to your point earlier, make the assumption when you think, if you think the rules are going to come in, when do you think they're going to come in? Yeah. So let's talk about now foreign acquisition. Mm -hmm. So how about a U.S. purchasing a foreign CFC, so a foreign corporation? Is that, is that being purchased through a CFC or, or directly by the U.S.? Let's, uh, let's start directly by the U.S. So if you're just buying a foreign company and the U.S. isn't doing any 338 or anything at all on it, then it follows that like a U.S. domestic corporation, you're not getting a step up in the basis of the assets. If, however, the U.S. acquires a CFC um, from a third party and makes a 338G election, which is not unusual in qualifying transactions. Historically, I think that was yeah. kind of the base case. We usually said make yeah. a 338G election. Then for US tax purposes, a fiction kicks in again, and the fiction is that the, effectively you've acquired the assets into a, a, a CFC, and therefore you get US tax basis in all of those assets at fair market value, whatever it is. Now, for Pillar 2 purposes, again, that fiction has no relevance. So for Pillar 2 purposes, you are buying a company. There isn't a step up in the assets. Even if there is a step up from a US GAAP consolidated perspective on purchase price accounting, that is reversed out. And probably for local tax purposes, there's no step up either. So there would be no deferred tax booked at that, at that level. Because generally, when you buy a foreign company, the shares in a foreign company, even if the U.S. has a fiction of a deemed asset acquisition, that fiction is not respected by the foreign jurisdiction either, and so there'd be no step up locally either. Right. That 338 election really only has uh, applicability for purposes of computing your guilty. Yes. Right? And oh, then no. there's the question of have companies, are they booking deferreds for guilty? I think historically no. many have not. Most and, have not, I yeah. think, is the honest. And we don't know where we're going to get to on whether we have to account for pillar two as a period cost or on a deferred basis as well. So that, that's a, a remaining uncertainty. Uh, where, that got in, where, that, where that does get interesting or would have got interesting or maybe still will get interesting is when the OECD decides whether the status of guilty in the world of pillar two. Now, you know, had, we ha had we had country by country guilty the hope was 
that a country-by-country -country guilty system would be deemed to be an income inclusion regime compliant system. And there you could see that if you did do a 338 election and therefore reduce your guilty income, that could be fairly advantageous if, if Pillar 2 was turned off by the income inclusion regime in the US. We're not there. So it's probably not relevant and until we do get something that I'm pretty sure like, it's not relevant given the state of play at it this looks, point. It looks but, pretty much like okay. it. So what about if a, you had said if a U.S. purchases a CFC, compare that to if a CFC, one of our foreign subsidiaries, is purchasing the CFC? Uh, probably no different. I mean, it's largely the same. It, you know, you get the question is, have they bought it? Um, as a disregarded entity or mm -hmm. from the seller and, and is that an asset acquisition for US tax purposes but again that's not really important for the jurisdiction analysis of right. where the CFC is because that's just a fiction for US tax purposes. Yeah, said another way if a US CFC is buying a disregarded entity then yeah. we have the same issues that you articulated if you buy a CFC and make a 338 election because it's really this fiction yeah. from a US perspective that allows you to get a step up for purposes of computing your guilty income. Now, where it can get interesting is if you do do those elections and then you bring that IP back to the US, because now you've got basis in that asset, which you really are getting deductions for on uh, your US tax. We're, we're going to come back to that because I think that's a very important point and I want to spend a little bit more time with it. And then maybe just to put a to cap on these, and frankly, we've been talking about U.S. parented companies acquiring. I think all of these rules apply, whether kind of it's a foreign oh, parent yeah. or, or a U.S. parent, as we think about 338 elections, disregarded entities, and some of these U.S. tax fictions. Yes. I mean, the same rules apply. Yeah. Um, anything else, and you, I think you had already touched on it, but a U.S., just to kind of close the loop, U.S. buying a foreign disregarded entity. Um, well, that's interesting because at that level, you're not getting a step up in the assets for the local jurisdiction. And, I, and I'm assuming a U.S. group is, is going to operate that as a branch going forward. Presumably, if it's buying yeah. a disregarded entity, it is a branch. For U.S. tax purposes. Now, for local, for the Pillar 2 purposes, that is still an entity that's treated as being in the jurisdiction in which it's formed. And so that would be its jurisdiction for Pillar 2 purposes. There's a rule that says under... Pillar 2, that if that is treated as a tax transparent entity by the holder, which it would be if the U.S. is treating it as a branch, any taxes the U.S. pays on those uh, earnings are pushed back down to the other jurisdiction for the purposes of the effective tax rate calculation. But it may well be you don't have any taxes. So let's assume you were operating in a jurisdiction which was a 10% jurisdiction you'd think, well, there'll be top-up tax in the U.S., but the U.S. tax calculation will give you benefit for the amortization on the deemed assets you bought, right. which means you probably won't be paying U.S. tax on those, so there's no taxes to drop down. Equally, again, under the current U.S. system, there's a branch basket, which is an aggregate branch basket, so if you've got other credits from other jurisdictions you're operating in branch, which may be offsetting the income of this branch, you could end up with a top-up tax uh, even in those circumstances. So lots of complexity in the disregarded entity structure. But again, you're starting from the principles that for financial statement and legal purposes, this was not an asset acquisition and the consequences then flow from there. Right. All right, so we've been talking about kind of wholly owned acquisitions, asset acquisitions. Mm. What about joint ventures? Because there's some very interesting computational yeah. aspects, at least the way the model rules and the commentary are framed with respect to when, when a, a company owns less than 100%. Yeah, and the kind of sweet spot on that is, do you own less than 100%, but do you own enough to consolidate it? And generally speaking, consolidate for financial statements. Yeah, for book purposes, right. Now, generally, that's a 50%, greater than 50% threshold, but that's not a statement of fact. So you could own significantly less than 50%, but if you have control over the board of the company, that could be enough to cause consolidation, even though you don't economically own more than 50%. So the first test is, do you consolidate under your gap if you're a U.S. company, U.S. GAAP or IFRS, or IFRS mm -hmm. analysis, do you consolidate that entity? If you do consolidate that entity, it is by definition a constituent entity of your group and gets brought into all the calculations.
And so if, for example, that joint venture is owned 60% by you, 40% by someone else, and underneath that joint venture you operate in a jurisdiction which you also happen to operate in out of a 100% owned entity in your group, those two get added together for the blending calculation under a jurisdiction analysis. And if it just so happens that the thing you're buying into is low tax and yours is high tax because you've got different holidays or preferences in those jurisdictions, they just get mixed up. And so you can end up with what looks slightly uneconomic as to who is paying a top-up tax on what because of the blending. There are specific rules built into the Pillar 2 rules to say that if you've got a joint venture arrangement where greater than 50% is owned, let's say, by your client, and greater than 20% is owned by third parties, then that joint venture arrangement gets its own special designation, which is a partially owned parent entity, which is abbreviated to a Pope. Um, so you've got this partially owned parent entity, and the rules then say, instead of just applying the IIR at the ultimate parent entity, you can apply it at the partially owned parent entity to everything it owns, which is actually an economically sensible answer because that means the top-up tax gets shared appropriately between all the parties that own interest in that entity. But, but that requires both the jurisdiction of the ultimate parent entity and the Pope to have implemented... Well, just the jurisdiction of the Pope. Just the jurisdiction of the Pope to right. implement that. But if, if that's in, let's say, the yeah. U.S., and they haven't implemented an income inclusion regime, which is where we sit today, mm-hmm. then the fallback rules kick in and things like the under-tax profit rule, etc., kick in. And that doesn't reduce itself by reference to fractional ownership. So let's say, again, I'm advising a U.S. company that owns 60% of a joint venture arrangement that is in the U.S., and hasn't implemented the IIR, and underneath that entity is an entity operating in a jurisdiction which has a zero tax rate, has a hundred of profit under there, you're economically entitled to 60% of that profit. There's a top-up tax in relation to that profit of 15% of a hundred because there was no local tax, so there should be 15 of tax collected your burden as a 60% owner should be 60% of 15. But the way the under-tax profit rule works is potentially your burden will be 100% of 15 because there's no fractional reduction in the application of the under-tax profit rule. And that would seem to be something important to negotiate heading in. Well, to so, I, mean, I, think you, I mean, I think if you're aware of it, it's pretty easy to negotiate either making sure that the entity that you joint venture through has an income inclusion rule so that you don't end up with this crazy rule, or you negotiate terms that give compensation from one right. party to the other. Where I think it's more important is we've already got joint venture arrangements. Right. And so imagine trying to go back to your joint venture party who you may not be on very good terms with for other reasons, who knows, and saying, we need to negotiate a way for you to pay your fair share of this tax that I'm picking up, and and let's see how those negotiations go. I can imagine in a lot of cases they're not going well. Right. And um, we didn't see anything in, in the UK proposed legislation, because this seems, I mean, we, this, this issue has been raised. I've, there's been a bunch of commentary about it. We heard about raised on panels. It does seem uneconomic. I mean, any speculation on whether they could take some sort of fractional kind of... Over- no, I, I, I mean, I did, ask, I did ask questions of people who may know the answers as to whether this was a drafting error or a policy decision. And the answer was there was a policy decision and that they felt it so would be... somebody's got to collect the tax. Someone's got to collect the tax. And if you don't like that economic answer that you're picking up 100%, and someone else is, isn't picking up their 40% or whatever the share is, then you, it's within your power to go away and renegotiate. And I said, well, you know, 
that's not realistic. Yeah, it's challenging for all the reasons that right. you had just described, yeah. and particularly for deals that have been around for a while. It's one yeah. thing as you're structuring it currently. And yeah, I think structuring it currently and go forward, you can deal with this. I think the problem is in relation to existing arrangements. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we start seeing some more boilerplate type language, yeah. similar to you know gross up clauses that we see with withholding taxes or yeah. similar types of provisions might be worth considering as you're structuring frankly, not just joint ventures, but any of these types of deals. Yeah, and you can deal with it economically. I mean, whether it's a, a super dividend share that says if you pick up more tax, you get a super dividend to compensate you for that mm -hmm. amount, or whatever it is. There's so many ways to do it. I think it's very dealable with on a go-forward basis. Okay. So wanted to turn now to um, you know some of the more structural aspects. So I think we've talked about the, the various scenarios of different types of deals and joint ventures, but wanted to start with intercompany financing because there are some particular rules that apply in the context of, of related party debt, for example. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the, the situation where maybe a company borrows externally in the US or maybe they already have excess cash and then they on lend on a related party to uh, acquisition vehicle. What should we be considering from a pillar two perspective on intercompany lending? So I, I think the point you're referring to is within the pillar two rules, there is a anti-abuse rule that applies to intergroup financing. Mm -hmm. And what that rule says is that for pillar two purposes, for the purposes of the pillar two calculation, if I've got a low tax jurisdiction that's borrowed money, so if I'm operating in... Let's say Ireland. Ireland. You've, you've set up an Irish acquisition company to buy either Irish assets Irish, or Irish assets. CFC. Yeah, and, I, and I'm I'm low taxed. I mean, Ireland is less than 15%. Let's assume that for these purposes. Then you'd expect the pillar two answer to be, well, whatever my income was in that jurisdiction, I get to reduce it for the interest expense that I borrowed to get to a net number on which I then do the pillar two top-up calculation. And that's what the Irish tax would probably do. In other words, you get a deduction locally for Irish tax purposes, so you would be paying Irish tax on an after-interest number in most cases. Yeah, subject to their interest limitation yeah, rules a, or whatever, but so just assuming so much, that that's deductible. There's so much nuance right. here, it's untrue. But um, So as a starting point, that's what you expect it to be. But there's an anti-abuse rule that says the interest-paying jurisdiction, so in my case, Ireland, does not get to count the deduction if it's been lent from a high-tax jurisdiction but has not been brought within the charge to tax in that jurisdiction. I'm paraphrasing words right. there. But we're back into this charge to tax yeah. concept. Uh, and, and when we originally saw that rule, we thought it was kind of a, a pointed at where you were treating it as equity in the lending. In the, in the yeah, lending if you're trying to do some type of hybrid instrument. Hybrid for, hybrid for book purposes or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. That's what we thought it was pointed at. And I think it does still affect those. Um, but what's become clear as this has been discussed and the OECD have presented on these at various consultation processes is they also believe that if it's not taxed in the recipient as a result of brought forward attributes of a certain type, then that will also cause a denial of deduction. And the one they focused on, at least in their commentary, was, for example, if I have losses that have a full valuation allowance against them, and I'm using those losses, releasing the valuation allowance likely, I'm using those losses that I would not otherwise have used without this, this interest income, then that is not a good income inclusion. Equally, things like 163J or the European variants thereof, like interest cap rules, where you've got interest expense that is carry forward and not deductible on a current basis, if you suddenly introduced interest income into that jurisdiction, then you release the carry forward interest expense dollar for dollar because it's a in net interest restriction. And again, they're saying in those circumstances, you would not have been able to use that interest expense were it not for the lending and therefore we don't think that's properly taxed. So for US companies, if you're going to lend down from the US because you've got excess interest expense or NOLs in the US and you're lending down to jurisdictions that might be low tax because you're saying, well, at least I can get a deduction for interest against the Pillar 2 calculation, 
be aware that you may not be getting an introduction. Right. And the other thing, we used Ireland as an example because it's 12 and a half, but we'll remind listeners that it could be in a jurisdiction that has a statutory rate significantly in excess of 15, but right. for all the reasons that we've discussed over these number right. of podcasts, that they may be below 15%. Yeah. And so you can't take that for granted. You have to do the calculation, figure out is that borrower, the acquisition right. company, you know, after they buy assets or whatever, yes. are they potentially high tax, are they potentially low tax from a globe perspective? Yeah, I mean, the definition is, are you low tax before you take the interest deduction? Right. Effectively. Right. Okay, so wanted to get to, you already teased this point on IP movements. And so wanted to talk a little bit about what are some things that listeners should be aware with respect to post-deal integration. And I think one of the challenges that we've seen is IP migration. So for example, I think, it is relatively common for U.S. multinationals to acquire a foreign target because it holds some specific IP that they are mm -hmm. interested in in a particular market. And then I think it's also relatively common to then take that IP and then move that IP somewhere in the structure, whether it's back to the U.S. or foreign principal, wherever they yeah. are developing that type of intellectual property. Yeah. What are some of the pillar two things that we should be thinking about as part of moving IP around post-deal? Well, so we're, I'm assuming we're in the transition period. Yeah, let's assume, let's start with the transition uh, so period. Which we are at the moment. Yeah. I think what you have to remember is if you're in the transition period and you bought a company, then irrespective of what the fiction was from a US tax perspective, for pillar two purposes, you have zero basis in that IP asset, assuming it was self-developed, no basis in the person you acquired. So you've got zero basis. And what the transition rule tells you is wherever you transfer it within the group after the deal is done, you don't get basis in the transition period. Even if you paid tax on it? Even if you paid tax on it. No, no, no relief at all, at least in the transition rule as currently drafted. It merely says if I transfer an asset between group members in the transition period, the basis for the transferee is whatever the carrying value was for the transferor, and assuming it was self-developed IP, the carrying value for the transferor would be zero in those circumstances. Right, and I'm gonna play that back to you. So assume a US multinational buys a Mexican target because there's some unique yeah. IP and they wanna bring that IP back to, to yep. the US. They sell that IP out of Mexico, they pay full Mexican tax on it, but then for pillar two purposes, the, they don't get any basis in, in the US for purposes of doing that pillar two capital. Under the transition rule as currently drafted, that's right. They did not distinguish between a transfer that was taxed fully at probably above 15% and a transaction that was not taxed at all. Now that's been pushed back on pretty heavily by a lot of people. And we understand that people are thinking about whether there should be some relief in there. But at the moment, the way the rules are currently drafted, no difference. It would seem to be a reasonable exception that if you paid tax at an appropriate rate for the transfer of that asset, that you could get a basis. kind of equivalent basis. Right. Um, and maybe even irrespective of what that statutory rate or what that basis might well, be. Well, maybe you even if, I mean, if, if, if for example, the rate happened to be 10% and they want a 15% threshold, that at least give us two thirds of the basis. Right. I mean, it's not that hard to do the math on that basis. So that that's the starting point. So you don't you don't get any pillar two basis or book basis by transferring it around after acquisition. And, and that is today. Just that's, I want to state right. again that is we are that's in right the transition now. period right. where it's like well pillar two doesn't even apply yet. Well, yeah. no, it doesn't apply. But the con the the the, the the integration transaction that you're yeah. doing today will have could have significant future consequences. Now, let's assume you then transfer it to a jurisdiction that has a 15% tax rate. Just I'll just use that as a base level, um, but that gives basis in assets acquired, even if they're acquired from a related person. So you transfer it to that jurisdiction. Then for, for book purposes, you're saying oh, for tax for, for, tax for tax purposes. purposes. Okay. So you transfer it to that jurisdiction, you would expect in that jurisdiction on a go-forward basis that you would pay tax locally on the after amortization right. number, whatever that number is, unless that was 15%. So you, let's assume just for the purposes of this, 
you had a hundred of income, your amortization for local tax purposes was 75, you therefore have 25% tax, 25% 25 taxable profit, and you would pay 15% locally on that 25, whatever that number is. Seven and a half, I think. So that's where you'd be locally. For pillar two purposes, the rules would say you don't get the amortization because you don't get the pillar two basis on the integration period. So the tax you should have paid is 15% of the 100 not 15% of the 25, and there will be a top-up tax on that full amount going forward. However, let's say you did this and you brought the amortization, and, and I used 15% as my local tax rate mm -hmm. quite deliberately, because there's no shelter built into that, and right. it's 15% is the minimum rate. But let's say I did the acquisition of a foreign company, did a US 338 election, so I've got US tax basis in that asset, and I bring it back to the US. Then again, for the US Pillar 2 calculation, I wouldn't be getting the amortization factored into my Pillar 2 calculation. But if my headline rate in the US is 25, and I haven't got any other significant preferences, I am getting the benefit of the amortization effectively, economically, and I'm not paying Pillar 2 top-up tax in it. So I do think, depending on your profile, where you move that IP asset could give you very different results economically going forward. For right. and, and the point, just to, re to remind listeners on the, the example where we make a 338 election, obviously when you move that IP, then you've got full basis, you don't have any guilty, you could still have local country tax. Still have local country tax. As, as moving that. But assuming I didn't, I could get that back into the US. I'd say, well, I'm gonna pay US tax and it, let, let's assume it's FDI eligible you know, maybe I pay 15% US tax in it, but that's 15% on the income after the amortization deduction, effectively, right. which is compare and contrast to if I put it in a foreign jurisdiction at 15% and I've got nothing else in that jurisdiction, I'm paying 15% on the pre-amortization number. Right. So the tax base is a very different number. Right, so, so we, we discussed, um, the post-deal integration and the mm. IP movement during the transition period, what about when these rules come online? Well, then it's very different because the, at that point in time, at least the, in, the intention of the rules is if I transfer an asset after the rules are in effect between group members, I'm meant to reflect the transfer in the pillar two calculation of the transferor at fair market value unless it qualifies as a something called a globe reorg, which is a very limited definition. And so I would, in, let's say again, I had zero basis in an asset and I transferred it for a thousand, then the transferor should reflect a thousand of income in its pillar two calculation. If it paid no tax locally on that transfer, you Because would, it was maybe subject to some exemption or, or capital yeah, yeah, uh, asset yeah, or yeah, whatever the case might be. Yeah, then I would pay pillar two top up tax of 15% of that thousand, 150. But I do get basis in the transferee jurisdiction mm -hmm. for pillar two purposes. So I get to reflect that asset at a thousand and I get to amortize that asset over the life of the asset right. under, under book principles. Under the book principles. But I mean, the fact is you're, you'd be paying a hefty toll charge, if you will, that's probably not the right term, but right. you'd be paying a big a big globe, you'd have a bunch of globe income and pay tax in the year of that transfer once right. these rules come on. Right. But, but it, you know, if, if your business model is, and some people are, you know, I buy IP rich companies and I integrate them into my business and I just pay the local tax to transfer it when I get it. And right. Some people do that. Right. But, and you know, that analysis that you just went through could inform if a company is doing a deal next year before these rules come online, what the timing of that transfer might be. Whether yeah. you'd want to do it during the transition period or whether you'd want to do it during the, yeah. once these rules come online. Yeah, because in effect, I mean, if, if, you're, if you've got a 15% tax locally on transferring that IP and you're willing to pay that check for that because that's your business model is I bring IP back to the mothership in the US and I integrate it or whatever, and I'm just gonna write that check. If you do it in the transition period, you're writing that check and not getting basis for it. 
if you do in the rules are in effect, you're writing the same check, but you're getting basis for it. Right. What advice do you have? I mean, we, these were mind-numbingly complex rules that we yep. just went through. I'm, I'm guessing that some of our listeners may need to listen to this again because, mm -hmm. I mean, these are really significant consequences, particularly in the deal space. But what general advice do you have for, for investors, taxpayers, advisors that are looking at, looking at deals and how to try to manage this entire process? Well, I mean, obviously, there is a threshold number here. I mean, you've got to be a certain size to be in the Pillar 2 rules in the first place. That's fair. Yeah. 750 million euros, you know, is is a relatively big number yep. for a lot of people. Um, so that's a big carve out. Um, but if you are in the rules, if you're capable of being in the rules, or you think you might be over a reasonable period of time as your business grows, I think the only advice I can give is you, you really do need to start paying attention to these rules now. Transactions you are doing now, whether they are third-party acquisitions, joint ventures, or whether you made the acquisition a couple of years ago and now you're integrating it, all of those are in play as a result of the transition rules. And how you do them or how you did them could materially impact your potential exposures under Pillar 2 going forward. And, you know, there isn't, there isn't an easy answer to this. These rules are incredibly complicated. They are tortuously written. And we have found as we work through them, they are full of ambiguity. And sometimes they're full of interpretation that you couldn't even read into it if you tried. Right. So it is important to understand the nuances and what the intent of the rules was perceived to be to actually contemplate how you deal with them. So unfortunately, I think it's you do have to get yourself up to speed or, or phone a friend. All right. Well, Callum, always insightful. Thanks for coming on and sharing your Pillar 2 wisdom. Okay. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Callum Dewar, International Tax Partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Office. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's Global International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.